This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. introduction and um, for you coming here for someone you probably have never heard before so that's a higher bar to cross so your selection there's selection bias in this room so I don't need to convince you that much people that didn't come would be the ones I would have to really sweat to convince but um, I will try to make it worthwhile for you being here and spending your evening here um, what I'm thinking I'm gonna do because we decided with um, Alex that we're not gonna bore you with a full extent of the the whole 45-minute uh, talk, we'll do a shorter version so that we can have more of a discussion that in this way we're going to make my work speak more to your interests rather than, because I already published this, so it's not really a fair game in the sense that your comments are not going to make it into uh, the, the, the book. <laughs> and maybe this second edition, which is so rare in academia that it never happens any, anymore, I think. Uh, so I'll start with um, just fixing ideas. Uh, the motivation, the true motivation for this work is a very personal motivation, but the intellectual motivation, let's say, um, comes from uh, the time of the Ottoman Empire, um, and primarily this prominent case that you all are all familiar uh, with, which has to do with the um, genocide and mass expulsions of uh, Armenians at uh, the end or the, the late Ottoman Empire period, right? So the puzzle um, is the following, the motivating puzzle is that up to 1875, if you read uh, Ottoman history and uh, from all sides, propaganda uh, from all sides, will agree that the Armenians were not singled out up to that point as a dangerous milieu, a, a dangerous religious community. Uh, so there is a sort of a consensus. There's variation of why people think that. There's variations of how the people explain that accommodationist or sort of multicultural arrangement, which wasn't truly multicultural in the sense we understand it now, but still it had some elements of, of um, uh, tolerance uh, of difference within the Ottoman Empire. Um, so how do we get from that point uh, in time with minority rights kind of recognized in this millet system that I mentioned. Uh, how do we get to the 1890s, a period of discrimination, and then all the way to ethnic cleansing that escalates to uh, the first genocide of the 20th century um, by most accounts. Uh, so why do we get in such short period of time such a dramatic shift in the relationship between the ruling elites of the Ottoman Empire and the um, Armenian, uh, Gregorian, uh, well, the Armenian uh, population in the empire. Uh, the Armenians had more than one religious affiliation they were identifying with, um, the majority being uh, Gregorian. So um, the question that emerges from this puzzle in the book and that I'm trying to address um, is basically what explains the variation in these nation-building policies that I schematically uh, showed you in the case of the Armenians, but I, I will, in a minute, uh, give you more options. But what is nation building? How do I define it? Um, 
I built on, of course, work done by others, and I tried to reframe and reconceptualize a little bit nation building, definitely from the way that the US administration, especially the Bush administration, used this term in the 2000s and has confused all of my students, at least, uh, by conflating nation building and state building. Uh, basically, uh, in the 2000s in the United States, we used this term to mean infrastructural projects in Afghanistan and Iraq, and that's not what nation building means in this book. And to be honest, it, does, it shouldn't mean that anywhere. <laughs> uh, but anyways, just to clarify, I mean, by nation building, I mean any attempt to make, uh, uh, or, or all the policies that are pursued by states to make the political and the national units uh, overlap. And that's building on the definition that Gilner gives of nationalism, but I'm just turning it into a more active um, definition. Now, as a result, I had to come up with different uh, policies that state builders, uh, or nation builders actually in this case, could, could follow. These are of course ideal types that can come in mixed varieties, and they do come, as you will see in the book, if you ever get the chance to look at it. Um, uh, they do come sometimes in mixed varieties, and sometimes uh, uh, they um, um, take very different forms. Uh, but the broad ideal types that I, I uh, landed on and uh, decided to use um, conceptually are assimilation, accommodation, and exclusion. So let's give some content to these categories. By assimilationist policies, I mean policies that keep uh, the non-core group, and by non-core group here, uh, I mean any group that is identified as different from the core group by the ruling elites, so that's a state-centric definition. It's not a subjective definition. If you're an anthropologist, you're getting this distinction right now. Uh, so in that sense, I'm not claiming that people themselves see themselves as different, but we're talking about how the state views them, right? And, and um, that difference could be emerging from a whole variety of ethnic markers or religious markers, right? In ethnic, in the US at least, the consensus now is under ethnic, we lump together for good or for worse, uh, both race and religion and so on and so forth. So it could be any type of identifiable marker, let's say, okay? So that's a, a term I'm using, as you will see in a minute, to avoid using the term minority, which in my framework, uh, is a term I reserve only for legally recognized groups. And that is because I'm following a state perspective, a state-centric perspective. If I use the term minority both for, you know, in a layman's term kind of uh, way of using it, which many people do and that's fine, and then I needed a new term for the legally recognized minority. So I decided to go with non-core groups to mean any group that is singled out as non-core in the way I described it earlier. And then the term minority is used only when the state has decided to go with accommodation, which then confers the group minority rights. And that's relevant in this group. That's why I'm elaborating on it. In other audiences, I wouldn't have gone so deep into that. And I explain a lot more in the book why I'm doing that. But in this case, we're still in assimilation. Here, you keep the non-core group, but you try to alter its culture. Now, culture is a very general term here. What we mean is that you're trying to eliminate, eradicate the differences that, uh, that um, um, are uh, distancing the core from the non-core group. It could be language, it could be religious conversion, it could be um, uh, even in racial, you know, even if you think it racially, you can change your own definition of the nation to fit to make these people fit your core group definition. That's what the United States did, for example, 
Um, so many people say, oh, what about race? I'm like, well, look at the United States. And then we're like, oh, we did? You know, and they move on. Uh, so uh, this is just an example. It's a Boy Scout organization that is trying to, in this picture you have um, all sorts of linguistic groups, uh, Latino-speaking Jews, all the way to uh, Greek-speaking uh, Vlachs, uh, all sorts of varieties of groups that are now in secondary associations trying to you know, interact. And through that, the Greek administration was hoping that it would, a new identity would emerge that would be the you know, a Hellenized group of people through these secondary interactions. Accommodation, on the other hand, is again aiming at keeping the non-core group at hand, right? And again, we're talking about the sub-national level already, right? We're not coding countries like Brubaker would in his 1992 book as civic and ethnic. I, I completely part ways from that type of understanding because I saw empirically, and a lot of the people in the room have also shown it in their own work, uh, that empirically states are not these monolithic entities that just do one or the other thing. They're much more nuanced. They could be civic towards one group in their approach and they could be ethnically uh, inclined in another group. So all countries, first of all, are ethnic and then some of them are civic more or less civic. But then again, even there, it's not enough to say that. That's kind of the way that Mark Howard would put that. Um, but then beyond that, you could say that they're selectively civic towards different types of groups. Right? So there is variation at the, na at the subnational level, at the group level, at the non-core group level. And that's basically another conceptual, let's say, push that I'm trying to uh, introduce in this literature. So accommodation here would mean that you perceive a non-core group, but instead of trying to alter its difference, uh, you actually institutionalize it. And that would be the first thing that I talked about, the Millet system in the Ottoman Empire. You could think of that as one way of institutionalizing difference. You're born in the room Millet, which is the orthodox Millet in uh, the Ottoman Empire. You die in that Millet. And very rarely, there is almost never an incentive to convert to Islam, which is another surprising, interesting uh, kind of um, fact about the Ottoman Empire that very rarely uh, they, they pursued uh, proselytization at the mass level. They only did it at borderlines and there is work on that uh, if you're interested. Finally, the third option, which is what most of you are interested in, I presume, given the titles of these programs here, um, is what I call, for lack of a better term, exclusionary policies. And I'll explain why I'm saying lack of a better term. Because under this category, we aggregate very disparate type of policies. But they all have one thing in common. They all aim at physically removing the non-core group. So as you saw in the previous two categories, we, we keep the non-core group, but we do different things with it. But in this case, this is the only clear case where you're not interested in keeping it. And that's, uh, under this, we can have population exchanges all the way to genocide. And that, from a moral point of view, could seem arbitrary. How can you have in one category called exclusionary policies both of these um, extreme, different, extremely different types of policies? But what unites them is what I consider is a common intention of eliminating the group physically from your land. And you can achieve that in many different ways. I'm not saying these are uh, interchangeable. Of course, they're not. But in this case, uh, I think this type of designation captures the intention of the elites. And I think I can predict that. I cannot predict, I think, uh, not I think, I'm pretty sure I cannot predict with my argument whether a, a, an elite uh, group will decide to go with genocide or just 
small-scale violence. So I think other factors will explain that variation. And Michael Mann and others have written about this. Uh, but I'm not claiming to explain this sub-exclusionary policy variation. It's, and ideology plays a huge role there and so on and so forth, right? But I think I can predict that general intention, not how exactly you're going to do it in this case. I'm clarifying that again because in this group, I think this is important distinction to make. And I make it in the book, of course, as well. So what explains this variation? I'll jump this, uh, through this very quickly because you all know this literature, but just to flag that I, these are the main alternatives I'm looking at. And they're not really alternatives. They're arguments that I'm grappling with and building on and kind of seeing whether they make sense. Uh, of course, you all know modernization theories. Well, the more we're modernizing, the more we become similar uh, because we all live in the same places and we have incentives that Gilner would say to speak the same language, to communicate, and uh, game theory would tell you also there's some type of convergence, latent theory of language games and cascades, so on and so forth. So there are some, this, and for them, this process of nation building is an unintended consequence of modernization. It's a byproduct. It's not consciously done by actors, right? Um, then we have the already mentioned theory by Brubaker that some states are civic, some states are more ethnic. That's why, and that explains how they deal with their groups. Clearly, we've already shown that with our discussion, I think that there's more variation than that subnationally, so that's easy to uh, debunk. Uh, well, at least not the bank, but qualify, severely qualify, let's say. Um, the primordial story seems to be a, a, a straw man, but actually, if you look into the literature, it comes back as a cultural distance argument all the time. So although people say, oh, primordialism is straw man, straw man, straw man, in, the, in reality, uh, everybody has this gut feeling, as George Bush would say, uh, that, that um, uh, you, some, some groups are just not assimilable. And, and they, they, they make this claim so easily, even I could, like really, really top academics could easily, you can make them, you can see them making this claim, essentializing the identity of a group and saying, well, really, this, you know, this couldn't have happened, right? Uh, but of course, if you look at the US history again, just as an example, which is seen as this uh, example that has nothing to do with the nationalism, well, it has changed its definition of nationhood at least three times in the past 200 years. So, so there are many ways to make cultural distance uh, less, uh, if you want to. Um, the National Homeland Reference State is a very prominent um, um, uh, theory. Van Houten, who's uh, at Cambridge, and uh, David Layton and Fearon, and, and uh, obviously Brubaker and others have written about this. The problem I have with this is that basically uh, this argument is limiting its scope to ethnic kinship only. And in my argument, as you will see in a second, I, I say that this is often just a window dressing. Uh, so for example, now uh, there's a whole debate in Crimea whether these were Russians that you know, Putin just wanted to liberate or whether they were Russophone or Russian friendly or whatever, you know, what are they? And I'm saying, well, it doesn't matter. Because Russia is doing the same thing in Syria, and nobody's talking about that in ethnic terms. But external intervention happens for a variety of reasons. Sometimes you dress it up as ethnic, sometimes you dress it up as co-religionist, sometimes you dress it up as uh, they didn't pay back their debt. Uh, in, the, in the 19th century, that was the most prominent reason for intervention. So uh, I'm saying that these, th th this is not wrong, but it just focuses in a truncated sample of the universe of cases. And thus, it may, lead, it, may, it may lead 
to biased results if uh, they're excluding systematically cases that um, uh, uh, are, have different dynamics uh, and patterns than the homeland ones. And finally, uh, Horowitz, Kaufman, but also Peterson have started, uh, uh, they have suggested that status reverse, reversal. So basically, if a priorly, uh, or, or if a group that was uh, in time zero dominated by a group, another group, and in time one now this whole hierarchy reverses, then you're going to have violence because they're going to try to get revenge, right? So that's another prominent argument that uh, I think is worth looking at, especially um, in the Balkan context in the interwar period that I'm focusing on. So I'm proposing an alternative argument in this book that focuses on actions of external powers, and here already you see how I'm moving away from homelands. Uh, that doesn't mean I don't care about these dynamics, it's just that I'm trying to have a more general category. And the interstate relations uh, between states that are involved in this process. So it's an international focus to explain domestic level variation. Okay? So it's a form of a neoclassical realist argument, let's say, but with a constructivist injection, in big time constructivist injection in it, I would say. Um, so the predictions just to fix ideas of my argument would be that non-core groups that are mobilized by an enemy state, a rival state, and it doesn't have to be a state, but in, just for brevity I'm going to be referring to a state. It could be a diaspora group. Uh, it could be uh, a, a multinational corporation in our days. It could be any external actor that has the capacity to alter the calculations between the non-core group and the, and the state fighting uh, each other is relevant here. But I'm going to be talking about states because in the beginning of the 20th century, primarily states were involved in this game. Uh, and now, in today's world, things have changed tremendously. Uh, but still, is, think, think rival being a state here, but it could be something else. So when the non-core group is mobilized by a rival, or I should say perceived to be, perceived to be mobilized, right? It's not necessarily that they are actually mobilized. It's enough if the ruling elites perceive them to be mobilized. And that is exactly what's going on in Ukraine right now, where everything is about, it's not about whether actually Russia is backing these groups in Donetsk or in Slavyansk. It's whether the Ukrainian government that is in place right now perceives the Russians of being, being backing them or not, or the US government perceiving them to be there, right? It, it's irrelevant whether it's true or not in this case almost. Uh, not, it's not relevant from a moral point of view, but it's irrelevant practically. Um, so then we're going to get exclusionary policies. Um, so when the non-core group is mobilized by an ally, and that could be an ally either in the sense of geopolitical terms, so think of Cold War, Greece and Turkey were an ally from a NATO perspective in the Cold War. So it's not an ally necessarily in a warm way. It could be a cold ally, but nevertheless an ally. So that's, that's trying to capture that type of a dynamic, not necessarily just a true friendship, which most realists wouldn't believe that it exists between states anyways. But it's more about a formalized uh, agreement that they're going to defend each other and they're not expecting an imminent uh, invasion from this country, right? Um, they're going to be accommodated, these groups. And finally, when non-core groups have no one mobilizing them, so there is no external link to that group, the default option, in a way, is assimilation. And of course, this is a good time to, to refer to scope conditions. 
Of course, this is only the case when we're talking about states that are driven by homogenizing imperative. So don't try to go around and look for this in states that are run based on Buena de Mesquita type of uh, politics of minimum winning coalitions between ethnic groups that are basically are not intending to create a homogeneous nation state. This, is, this argument is bounded by an assumption right, that the elites of the country are motivated by a homogenizing imperative. And again, those are many countries in the world, but they're not all the countries in the world. And I have another paper with Keith Darden uh, from American University where we're trying to explain why and under what conditions uh, would states go for nation building and a homogenizing imperative and why not, but you'll have to invite me back another time for that. <laughs> um, that was a joke. Uh, so, <laughs> so basically, I'm not going to go very thoroughly over this, but this is the structure of the full version of the talk. This was the introduction, believe it or not. But I'm going to jump over the theory because I think this is a group that um, um, has understood the argument already by the hypothesis. Just to say here, we have three actors in the stylized version of the argument. Uh, the non-core group is perceived, again, the perceived is key here, as mobilized by an external power or not. Then we have a host state. The, uh, its domestic political arena is dominated by revisionist or status quo politicians. By revisionist, we mean politicians that want to alter the territorial. This is primarily focusing on territorial um, um, revisionism. Uh, uh, and, and then, or it could be dominated by politicians that are status quo. In, the, in other words, they're fine with the international distribution of borders and power, right? And they wanted to preserve it, actually. They're not just fine. They actively want to preserve it. And then finally, you have an external power, which could be a rival or an ally. In a way, this is giving you the variation of what types of actors we can have, right? In this, in this stylized, again, this is much more messy in the book, in the cases, but this is the formal presentation of the argument. So the logic, the, there are five principles that are backing this argument of mine. And in a way, these principles, these beliefs, if you want, that I, I'm, I'm asserting that these beliefs are driving the logic behind these policies, and, and these beliefs that I'm going to list are in the minds of, hom of elites with a homogenizing imperative. Again, I have to make that clear. So first, a first belief is that assimilated non-core groups um, are, are less likely to be targeted by external powers. It's non-controversial, but just to explain it, if um, somebody tries to target Alan, who is from New Zealand, if I take it correctly, uh, if the Soviets in the Cold War tried to target him and tell him to work against his government, uh, probably he wouldn't have done it because he's assimilated. He feels New Zealander. I hope I'm right about that. right? And, and he, would, he would be a bad material to invest in if the Russians wanted to corrupt him and turn him against him, right? So that's an assumption. I think it's a fair assumption, but it has to be there to, for my argument to work, uh, for the motivation structure to work. The second assumption is that benefits, the benefits that you get from an alliance with another state or another actor are greater than the cost of accommodating that group. Because you remember I have predicted accommodation of allied-backed groups, but this is based on an assumption that the accommodation cost is less uh, than the, the benefit you get from the alliance. And that, again, it's pretty uncontroversial. It's, it's better to have an ally in time of war than, uh, than not, and, and 
you know, building a few mosques or a few churches to accommodate a group is not going to be uh, 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 usually, most often it's not going to be uh, a no-go. Third, an ally-backed non-core group is less of a security threat. We already have implied that. Um, fourth, exclusionary policies when you do follow them of either forced migration or uh, ethnic cleansing for sure and, and all the way to genocide uh, clearly are more likely to lead to a, an initiation of a war rather than any other of these other policies of accommodation or assimilation. Again, non-controversial assumptions, but I have to be clear about them. Uh, finally, I argue that accommodation of a rival-backed non-core group is not an option for an elite uh, that is, that's operating in a homogenizing imperative type of way. Okay? And again, imagine I was arguing all these things uh, when Putin had done nothing and everybody thought that nationalism is gone from the world and you know, we had European elections and nationalism doesn't seem to have been uh, uh, very quiet in this election, right? So, so this logic now may resonate more because we've read a lot of articles from uh, you coming from Ukraine, but it was uh, very con more controversial, let's say, uh, five, six years ago when I was writing about these things. Um, but it seems to be um, uh, playing out uh, similarly in the contemporary cases we're facing. So this, the, the, you know, the social science version of what I was telling you is always a two by three or two by two, right? So here you get a summary of, of all the things I've told you. Uh, now what is very important to note is that there are these um, footnotes or like signs next to assimilation on this graph. I'll explain them in a minute because I think that's crucial and then I'll stop uh, with uh, in uh, oh, how much more time do I have Alex? As much as you need. Okay. Uh, I'll see the first person who gets bored. I'll, I'll stop. Yeah. Uh, so basically here we have again the three actors, the host state, the external power. I'm endogenizing um, the preferences and demands of the non-core groups to, um, uh, to the host state, to the external power uh, backing, uh, only insofar as it affects the perceptions of the host state. So in a way, I don't explicitly talk about the non-core group agency, although I do discuss it in the book, because I, 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 as we see in the Ukrainian case, I assume that the host state will discount any efforts from the non-core group to signal that they're loyal if they know or if they think that someone else is backing them. So uh, that's another um, kind of uh, assumption that I need to be clear, especially in the presence of people that study groups per particularly rather than just the state, right? And many of you study from the bottom up, I think, processes. But um, I, can, I can defend that choice uh, afterwards if you want. Uh, again, that doesn't mean that it's not viable to study those groups. It's just that I'm not incorporating this argument. So again, if there is no backing, you get assimilation. But here assimilation means assimilation of people. Okay? But here, when we get assimilation in, in a case of a status quo host state that is uh, experiencing uh, an external actor that um, is an enemy, we mean assimilation of territory here. And I'll explain what I mean by that. This is what is the most interesting maybe for this group is that here assimilation refers to internal displacement and internal colonialism. So this would be a type of policy that the Chinese state is following in Xinjiang. Uh, but I call it assimilation because it's still the, the purpose is to uh, um, uh, keep the non-core group, but uh, limit 
the cultural distance either by you know outnumbering them and forcing intermarriage almost by this policy right um, uh, you can think of prima nocte as a form of assimilation as well but that, you know I'm just giving you a sense of again it doesn't mean assimilation in the good old uh, Eugene Weber variety that we all know from uh, how peasants became Frenchmen uh, in the 19th century uh, but it's more about um, uh, the end goal being the same, which is to eliminate the difference without excluding the group necessarily. Um, now, the reason that you go with this policy here is because you don't want to bring about a war. And if you went with a policy of exclusion, you would, you would most likely bring about a war uh, and you would challenge the status quo you want. That's why I'm predicting that revisionist only type of states, elites that want to actually have a great idea of some sort, great Albania, great Serbia, great Greece, um, they are more likely to use exclusionary policies. Okay? So that's how these two uh, are explained. And if you have a, an allied back group, always accommodation. So we've already explained that. So I wanted just to clarify this different types of assimilation for you. So again, the predictions to recapitulate the argument, non-core groups that are not mobilized are going to be targeted with assimilationist policies. Again, there are some um, outliers here. Uh, David Leighton has written a, a wonderful article uh, called uh, Marginality, and it's about the Roma and the Jews in the Europe and trying to explain why they haven't, because they didn't have external backing, but still they haven't. Uh, and so there are some outliers, but overall, if you think of the thousands of ethnic groups that have been assimilated by various uh, countries, um, especially those of you who read medieval history, uh, you know that there are many names of groups that no longer exist. So that's what happened to them. Okay, <laughs> they got assimilated. Um, Non-core groups mobilized by rivals are excluded by revisionist elites, and they're in, they're uh, assimilated through territorial types of policies, so internal displacement and colonization by status quo elites. Non-core groups mobilized by allies are more likely to be accommodated. Again, these are predictions. They're not nomothetic. They're probability statements. And in the book, in fact, even in the Balkans, which is the case that I know best, they only predict uh, correctly about 78% of the cases. So there are outliers. And I have a whole chapter in the book that is called Old Cases, which are basically cases that don't fit my theory, and I decided to call them odd. Uh, in a very Hobbesian manner, I'm my own Leviathan, so I make right and <laughs> wrong. So, but in that sense, you know, you can uh, you can um, then see what are the aberrations and for what reason I think I've mispredicted uh, some of the cases in the Balkans. So the empirical tests include a cross-national test that I just referred to in the Balkans, where I have actually coded about 90 uh, non-core groups. This is an old version of this slide, I realize. I call them still minorities here, imagine. That's probably like 2006. <laughs> and um, so about 90 non-core groups that were in what we call, what we used to call European Ottoman Empire, right? The European side of the Euro Ottoman Empire. Um, and I'm doing that because it's a very heterogeneous region. We have uh, pretty much controlling at that period of time for the levels of industrialization, legacies of past rule, they, are all under, they were all under the Ottomans. That doesn't mean there is not internal variation, but the variation is not as consequential as going across empires or 
something like that. And then you also control for world time effects, right? Norms have changed today, since then, and, but all of these groups were living in the same time. And then, more importantly, there is variation in mind-dependent variables and the, 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 the explanatory variables, right? So alliances shift a lot in the beginning of the 20th century because of, of the Balkan Wars, because of World War I, uh, and then border change, borders change. And that also gives different incentive structures for revisionism or status quo type of mentalities among these elites in the Balkans. So as I said, this is a, the, on top you see the theory predictions. On the side you see the actual policy that was pursued. Basically this diagonal are the correctly predicted. And then you find outliers. Uh, the most interesting outliers for me and the, the most numerous as you can see are cases where the actual policy was accommodation, but we actually um, had the prediction of assimilation. And not surprisingly, as I alluded to earlier, these were primarily, uh, this is primarily due to uh, uh, many Jewish cases in the Balkans. Most of them were mispredicted. And so instead uh, of being targeted with assimilationist policies, these Jewish communities uh, were targeted with accommodationist policies. Uh, basically minority rights. And of course, all of you would automatically think the minority treaties, well, hopefully you'll automatically think that, uh, about uh, the League of Nations and the minority treaty that Poland signed and then it was actually copied by other states. Um, but uh, when I go into the outlier analysis, I find that actually in the perception of the state elites, the Jewish community was not truly seen as non-backed. In fact, most elites were seeing the Jews as backed by Britain and a lot of these allied forces that won World War I. So in a, in a way, it still fits. It, it's not an ideal type of prediction because there is no particular state of their own in, in a strict sense or it's not a clear backing in terms of mobilization. But they definitely have, after the Balfour Declaration, they're perceived uh, as a national minority while Earlier, they're perceived as a religious minority. So there's a transformation that I'm describing in the book. Uh, or, and that, that transformation, I'm arguing in Europe at least, is happening at that time of the Jews no longer being perceived as just a yet another religious group. But they're gradually, because of the rise of the Zionist movement, but also because of these declarations from the UK side, they're gradually being perceived more and more as an ethnocultural group rather than as purely a religious denomination. And that's a very interesting transformation that happens. Uh, and, and most likely, I mean, in my view, it's an unintended consequence of how things played out. It wasn't like somebody was consciously trying to make this happen, apart from the Zionists, of course, who are, that's their agenda, of course. Um, but many of the, of the Jews, Jewish communities across Europe had no agency in that. That's what I'm trying to say. And they were not necessarily... Uh, interested in pursuing that at all, but they were perceived as that. So from an agency perspective, it's a pretty tragic story where there, they, there's no room for agency from the Jewish perspective of denying that process because they were kind of caught in it. Um, the subnational test is a zoom in in that blue dot there, which is Western uh, Greek Macedonia, implying that this is the Greek part of Macedonia, not that this is all that Macedonia is only in Greece. Uh, but, uh, uh, there, you know, the area of Macedonia was extending in the Balkans uh, beyond the line that was uh, given to the Greek uh, state. But this is the western part of what was given after World War I to Greece. And that um, 
part uh, includes more than 10 known core groups, but the, the, the elite that I'm studying, um, the local governor, general governor of the area, is documenting 10 of them. And I'm, I'm, I was lucky enough to find his private papers where he's describing how he's thinking about these groups. And he's sending these reports to his prime minister, and they were confidential, so I'm assuming that to the best of his abilities, he's trying to be honest about the content. Of course, I'm assuming also that he's exaggerating certain things to get more resources and so on and so forth. We know that this is a common trend, especially for British consuls, by the way, you should know that. That's where we realize that first. <laughs> um, and I, we'll talk about British consuls in a minute. So um, this area was linguistically, religiously, and culturally very heterogeneous. At the same time, um, we are within the scope conditions of argument. Greece is a very clearly nationalist state at that point, and it has a very clear homogenizing imperative. Um, and we're controlling for a lot more variables here, right? If we were controlling for variables at the Balkan level, well, going subnationally within Greece, we're controlling for a lot more stuff that has to do with re regime type, domestic politics, so on and so forth. So this variation is a really micro from a perspective of political science, at least. Uh, not from anthropology, necessarily. Um, so, and we can test also at that level all these, well, at least these three arguments. The cultural distance, status reversal, and homeland. So, this is the governor that we're talking about. Here he's addressing uh, Turkish children, uh, or not, actually it's a misnomer to call them Turkish children because they're just Muslim at the time. There is no Turkey at the time, obviously, in 1920. Uh, but um, basically, uh, he, he, here is an effort for him to reach out and kind of try to incorporate this community. And here is a sense of the diversity we're talking about. Here is all the non-core groups that are referred to broken down by religion and language. And here, I'm not trying to turn you into experts of the Balkans, but glancing at this, you, most likely you can easily see that there are a lot of Muslims, there are a lot of Christians, and many of them speak the same language regardless of whether they're Muslim and Christian. And similarly, there are many Slavic speakers, there are many Greek speakers, there are many, you know, um, um, I guess, um, well, Greek and Slavic and Vlach are the most prominent uh, repetitions, but they come from different religious backgrounds. In that sense, what I mean is that this was not perfect maths at all. These identities were still fluid. They were still manipulatable, let's say, or malleable. Um, and in that sense, um, this is really uh, where we should see this uh, being at work. Um, so, and we do, actually, and uh, you have to take my word for it or read the book. Um, then the final type of test that I do is a temporal test, which is an overtime variation. I'm basically looking at the Albanians in Kosovo, and I'm, I'm uh, going um, through all the different policies that the, the, initially the Serbs and then later on the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes is pursuing towards the Albanians in Kosovo through primarily actually the British Foreign Office archives at Kew, um, and so the National Archives, and, and basically uh, tracing um, the variation over time, which is tremendous. Uh, what our um, natural tendency is to focus on the most prominent cases of violence, for example, 
and assume that by looking at the most violent moment, we know what was always going to happen in a place, right? So since um, in the 1990s we had the ethnic cleansing of Albanians by the Serbs, that means that this was always imminent, it, was, it would have happened, it must have happened, and it just happened when the opportunity was there. That's a very dominant narrative, uh, both in the Greek-Turkish relations and in, the, in all of these uh, dyads that are conflictual, right? Well, what I find by looking at overtime variation is that, in fact, and this is kind of like how these reports look when they're typewritten, they're not always typewritten. Um, what I find in, in the case of, of um, the Albanians in Kosovo is that initially there was some ethnic cleansing, uh, but then later on there was some accommodation period. Uh, actually, there was first an assimilation period, then an accommodation period, and then again ideas about ethnic cleansing at the end of the interwar period when. Uh, the German influence of, and fascism are on the rise, these ideas come back up, but uh, we have a tremendous variation. Almost all of these policies are pursued and thought about by the elites, which debunks this uh, teleological argument that this was always meant to happen kind of thing. And that's pre-World War II, imagine. Uh, so uh, that's, I think, uh, further evidence that if the argument works uh, cross-nationally, the argument works sub-nationally, and then works over time, uh, it makes me a little bit more confident. So the findings to summarize is that non-core groups mobilized by rivals were excluded in revisionist states and assimilated more, over, more often than not, again, probabilistically, uh, in status quo states. Non-core groups mobilized by allies were more or less accommodated. Non-core groups that were, are not mobilized by anyone were assimilated or targeted with assimilation, I should say. And having a different language and religion from the core group makes accommodation more likely than assimilation, but does not necessarily predict exclusion. And that's a key finding, meaning that it's not enough to have difference to get to exclusion, for sure. But it does make accommodation more likely than assimilation uh, in the statistical uh, um, uh, analysis that I've done. Finally, group size, living in urban centers, and the presence of a homeland are not coming up as statistically significant in my analysis. That doesn't mean they're not relevant. It, probably means that my, my variables are taking up a lot of the, the action and they don't leave enough room for these uh, variables to explain variation. That doesn't mean they're irrelevant, it's just they don't come up significant. And that's the limitation is of statistics, is not of these arguments necessarily, <laughs> I think, at least. Um, finally, policy implications, which I think this group would care about, is first, that I, I, I think that my argument implies that to improve relations and that's kind of counterintuitive in the beginning, but you'll, get, you'll see where I'm getting at. To improve relations between non-core groups and host states, we need to improve relations between states. Uh, so focusing so much in like the disputes and the, local, uh, the localized problems is one way to try to address things. But another way is to try to improve um, uh, relations between states. Well, how can we do that? Increase interstate alliances. What is the most prominent and most successful way of doing that? Regional integration. Uh, clearly the European Union is going through some hard, hard and rough times right now, but there is no doubt that the accommodationist uh, era and the, the multiculturalist, the emergence of many multiculturalist norms and, and policies would not have been possible in the European context without the European Union regional integration program. And it, the, the further evidence of what I'm saying is that now that it's going through crisis, 
a lot of these consensuses that were put in place are actually being challenged tremendously by contemporary politics, I would say. That's my argument. Finally, or maybe penultimately, to prevent exclusionary policies, we need to minimize border changes. And I'm sorry to um, uh, sadden my friends uh, that are supporting self-determination movements left and right, and there are plenty actually. Uh, I don't know why I end up with such friends. Uh, but uh, but I, I do strongly believe that border changes necessarily will lead to more nation building, naturally. And especially when, of course, these border changes are happening in places where elites have a homogen are, are, are motivated by a homogenizing imperative. Uh, alternatively, border changes in places where there is no such homogenizing imperative are more likely uh, to are less likely to lead to such uh, policies, and other things will be governing the policy options there. Finally, I was right. Um, if you are, and this is targeting a U.S. audience, but I think Britain has its fair share of colonial history, so I can say it here too. So if you are a rival of another state, any effort to assist a non-core group in that state might put it in danger. And we should always be conscious about that. What does this mean is that, well, if you are invading Iraq and you've made it very clear that you're using or you're thinking of the Christians in Iraq as your favorite minority, well, don't be surprised if they're ethnically cleansed. I mean, I was saying that to the State Department seven years ago. They were still not very sold on that, on, on, on that I was right. But then they realized that very few Christians were interested in going back, even with a lot of money they were giving them for repatriation and so on and so forth. Right? So why? Well, because people on the ground do understand that, what I'm saying. But sometimes policymakers do not see that uh, unintended consequences of some of their actions. And sometimes the key of my argument is that sometimes it's not even their actions. It's the perception that plays a role of the even imaginative or purported actions that can get a group in trouble regardless. Look at Syria now and what's going on with Christian communities there and so on and so forth. So that's not just for global powers. Turkey's involvement in Syria could also get certain groups uh, into the spotlight from the Assad regime. Any, any backing of, an, of, an, of a rival of a group that is facing an existential threat will necessarily lead to a danger. What does this mean? This doesn't mean that the responsibility to protect is out of the window or that you should never intervene. It means that if you're going to do it, do it right, as George Michael would say. Okay? So, with that, I think I can uh, start the Q&A. Yep. Thank you for your attention. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.